Did Nebraska win today? Oh, they didn't play today. I thought. Wait a minute. Oh, is it like a bye week? Yeah, it's a week off. Yeah. Oh, okay. I I I gotta be honest. I don't really get college sports. Oh no, you know, I you have to. Yeah, I feel like you have to be American to understand it. Quite frankly, I don't even understand it much <laughs> anymore. But I'm in so deep now, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> now, like this is gonna sound like a dumb question, but you went there, right? No, I didn't actually. So you're I, not from there, and you didn't go there. No, I, I like the explanation I give is that I basically wanted to like everyone in Iowa because Iowa has no professional teams. Right. No, but they they they've got college so, teams. Yeah, they do. But so everyone either picks Iowa or Iowa State, and I just like my rebellion, quote unquote, was to pick Nebraska because I didn't want to go for either of those teams, and so. That's how I said how I decided I was setting myself apart in my own mind. You are a bad man. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 147 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of the movie loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Today we welcome family back to the show. Uh, a, a guy who's been a supporter of every damn thing I do. Um, pretty much from the get-go and it's uh been far too long since he was here as we were talking about off air uh he has not been on this show since 2012 and uh as i, as I said that's the the downside of doing this show every other week and trying to keep the line moving is i just don't get my friends on nearly often enough so i'm gonna have to savor this episode for every morsel it's worth he is the brains behind cinema romantico we are across the wire tonight to the windy city, the snowy city tonight, apparently. Um, Chicago, Illinois. We're talking to Nick Priggy. How are you, sir? I am well. I am I am excited. I love I love the snow. I love the cold. It's Thanksgiving week, so I'm I'm in a I'm in a very good mood right now. You're you're not dreading having to travel through it in a few days? No, I will actually be here. Oh, I'm okay. stay I'm staying in town. So nice. as far as I'm concerned, the more snow the better. Bring it on. <laughs> Even better. Awesome. On episode 147, we will be discussing Spotlight. We will be turning the record over to play the other side, but first we need to learn more about Nick. This is Know Your Enemy. So back on episode 95, we learned that the first movie that Nick had ever seen was E.T., The Extraterrestrial. The last movie he'd seen at the time was a 1938 gem called Algiers, which I still haven't seen. That's <laughs> I right. Made, I totally forgot about that. I, I, I made a big do. <laughs> I made a big do on that show about. Yeah, I'm gonna go see that now. <laughs> nope. Uh, it, yeah, that happens. The, um, the worst film of his recollection is Armageddon for several different reasons. Uh, the unseen classic or essential was The Magnificent Ambersons. Have you caught up with it yet? I have. Yeah, and? I saw it. Uh, saw it last year. And. Uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. It kind of, you know, at the end, yeah, when you can really see where the studio interfered, yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of yeah. falls off a little. But <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I liked it overall. Nice, you, get, you know, nice little dose of Joseph Cotton there. It's yeah, it's good. And the film that he wished he'd made, um, very much from a writing perspective, was The Life Aquatic. So it's time for round two. Nick, what's the film that you like that nobody else digs? Elizabeth Town. Which, okay, well, yeah, okay. Uh, I, yeah, I feel like I'm pretty famous, at least with my friends and, and maybe a, a few film blockers for having an undying love for that movie. Okay. 
what is it about that movie that appeals to you? Like I, I truthfully, I, there are things about it that I like as well, but I, I feel like I need to hear this from somebody else because I'm usually that guy. <laughs> I, what I, in let me preface it by saying I am aware of its many flaws and, and I understand the problems that a lot of people have with it. But overall, I would say the earnestness of that movie is what really comes through for me. It, it's a, it's a very earnest, heartfelt movie from Cameron Crowe. And there are moments, it's a movie that's very much about moments, individual moments, individual scenes that all, and, and those all work for me. Like, the road trip at the end is just, I think, is a wonderful set piece that really communicates what he was going for in that movie. And, and yeah. so I, I'm, I'm willing to put aside the things that don't work about it for the things that do. You know, what's funny with every subsequent film he's made. Elizabeth town looks better <laughs> and better. And um, it's, it's so true. It I, really is. Yeah. I, I dig that movie for a few reasons. I, I completely admit that it's a mess. I would never say to somebody, you're wrong, yes. you know, but yeah, I, I, yes, I, which is strange because my first encounter with it was at that year's Toronto International Film Festival. And during the second showing of the film, um, there was like during the, the, the introduction, they actually said, this is a work in progress. If there are any critics in the audience, please hold your reviews until the final cut is released closer to the release date. Now, yeah. by that point, I, we, we happened to go see it again. And I was like, okay, what's changing? And so little of it changed. Oh, it really? really made, it was, there was, um, there was another thing at the end about the shoes, like the shoes kind of had a second life. Yeah, I end. feel like I remember Ebert mentioning. Yeah, that. It, it, you know, they they became this kind of niche thing where if you cut those little wings off, um, they they made a sound, and that was you know the kind of the the nice little thing about the shoe. But everything else remained intact. So I was like, okay, you clearly didn't look at this movie of what people were saying wasn't working. You just <laughs> cut it for time because yeah. no, there there is a great movie in there hidden that I, I really, really believe could be extracted. So that's not such a bad call. Yeah, Although he you're, seems you're, to, you're right. I know a lot of people don't like that movie. Yeah. And he seems to have no idea. I feel like that's the same thing with Aloha, that there's a great movie in there and he just like, he can't extract the great movie anymore. Maybe. That's the, the you know he I think he needs he needs some collaboration is what is what Cameron Crowe needs mm, in my yeah, opinion. That... Uh, what okay let's let's flip the coin over. What is the film that everybody else enjoys that you don't? Uh, that would be the Lord of the Rings trilogy, <laughs> which I cannot stand. Like any of it. the The first one I, the first one I can more than tolerate. I think I, th- I think that has. <laughs> they should put that on the poster. Yeah, there there that has that has some pace. That has some decent pace going okay. for it. It's the last two, though, that were just unholy slogs for me. I, I, I just I can't stand them. I, I take it you didn't go back for the Hobbit trilogy. Uh, I did not, no. <laughs> and I feel like that's part of... I mean, I did not like them at all in the moment, but I also feel like retroactively they've kind of hamstrung Peter Jackson, and he's yeah. just kind of hung up now in this universe when he needs to be getting on to something else. Well, there there was a story that dropped this week about why the Hobbit films were so, uh, like, you know, so Yeah, I heard about that. I didn't read it, but yeah. I well, the, the story goes that he, he wasn't, he didn't really have a plan this time. Like, the last one was years, years in the planning, and this uh, one was kind of slapdash together within, you know, 18 months or so after Guillermo del Toro bowed out. So... 
I and, and here's the thing. I would never go so far as to say I dislike them, but I don't really count myself a fan. I loved mm-hmm. the first one when it dropped, and I actually really like mm-hmm. the second one too. But by the time you get to the third one, I just feel that it's so bloated. It really is. Yeah, and and, and it suffers from one of the things I I dislike most in film, and I just went through this with Hunger Games on the weekend, is when a film seems to end and then end Mm -hmm. and then end. Like, like, (laughs) you know, don't don't keep doing that. Find your ending. I'll give you a coda if you want to do a nice little epilogue okay sure yeah only one and then that's and then out we go you know so many climaxes it becomes like completely anticlimactic yeah so so do you have to wear that burden are you that guy like do your friends kind of uh i mean i have a few friends that well i have a few friends that i feel like liked the books okay maybe more maybe more than the movies so i i I haven't had too much okay that's good. That's good. It's it's, it's yeah. you know when you get when you got to be the I like uh, you know usually I'm the guy who likes Prometheus. So that's, sure, that's yeah, kind of the I way I get that. known. Right? <laughs> um, what, what was the last film to make you cry? Uh, so the answer to this, um, the answer to this was honestly going to be different uh, four days ago, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story anyway. That on Tuesday I was kind I was having kind of a bad day. And I came home, and my girlfriend was very nice in sensing that I was in a bad mood. Titanic happened to be on HBO, and okay. I am a passionate, massive fan of Titanic. And so I ended up watching it, and she went in to read her book. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched to the point where uh, the band plays Nearer My God to Thee. Right. And it choked me up again, and I started crying, and then I was like, all right, I, I think I need to just go to bed now. <laughs> Um, it's, yeah, like, I don't, I know that film made me cry on first watch. Yes, me um, too. It was, it was a different part, but yeah, it did. Yeah, because, because I seem to remember the girl I was with at the time made a comment, mm. um, because we saw it in the theater. Um, but it was, I think it, for me, it was, it was closer to the end that I, that sure. I did. And it, it's, it's crazy. Like that film has really become kind of like a not, not just a generational touchstone because that was the, the, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why that film did so well was that it crossed over generations, right? Like the older crowd yeah, liked absolutely. it because it was more like the kind of movie they used to have. They used to watch the younger crowd like it because yeah. they had pretty people. And, and <laughs> it has really stayed that way. Like despite the amount of flaws we're able to pick with it over time, it's really stayed that epic sweeping romance that can make male and female alike just into a puddle of tears. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very. Yeah, an old, so. old-fashioned, timeless epic. I feel yeah. like. You feeling better now? You're okay. Do you need to cry? We could. We can pause this. I, I am okay. Okay. But if, even though, as I said earlier, I am in a good mood. If you put Titanic on right now, you're gone. Okay. I, there would be something that would come up, and I. Okay. I'll, I'll, if 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 we have any sobs over the course of the podcast, I, full <laughs> disclosure, I will leave them in. <laughs> in the movie of your life, okay. who plays you? Uh, this is a two-part answer, okay. either or, uh, Jesse Eisenberg or Michael Sarah. <laughs> okay, so it's kind of funny because when Eisenberg first kind of showed up, that was the running joke was that he, yes. he kind of really he was like Sarah, but with you know a different a different id about him. Uh, why why those two who are now very different people? Well, that's true. Yeah, I feel like Eisenberg has kind of expanded his repertoire a little yeah, bit yeah. more, um, but. They both have well for starters they 
each of those guys has played a character named Nick twice in his movie career, which I feel like should be noted. Okay. And I do not think is just a coincidence. Um, but they both can channel a kind of neurotic franticness that I think <laughs> defines the inner me. Okay. I, either, either one of them, I think, could bring that, bring that to the screen very ably. So was your spidey sense just going into overdrive when you watched the double? <laughs> you know, I actually haven't seen the double. Oh, it's so good. I know. Now that you say it, you put it that way. I can't believe I haven't seen yeah, it. You, you, yeah, I was going to say, you do need to watch the double. Um, Eisenberg, of course, was in the news this week because he did this weird little piece of performance art unto itself where he wrote as a critic um, yeah. and, and got all the critics all up in a tither. Yeah, which lit up Twitter. Um, yeah, it, well, and anybody, I'll I'll include this in the show notes. Anybody who's listening to this, take a look at what uh, Matt Zoller-Seiss had to say about that, because as usual, he found a great amount of clarity in the moment. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and really hit the nail on the head. I'll, I'll actually include both Eisenberg's piece and Zoller-Seiss's piece in the show notes for this episode, if you're curious to read. Uh, you know, I people, this is an audio show, so people can't see you. Neither one of them really look like you at all. Um, no, per- yeah, perha- no. Per- perhaps in like, you, you know, in like height and weight and, and that's about where <laughs> it stops. Um, even though they look like each other, that's a, that's a pretty good answer though. I like that though. Yeah. Either whichever guy is available. Whoever's wants free. To do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last but not least, what are you watching next? Uh, I think it's probably going to be, um, S- secret in their words. What is that? The, uh, is that the right? I feel like I keep getting the secret the in their eyes. Secret in their eyes. Oh, I feel like okay. I just said. I feel like I just mispronounced it thirty minutes ago too. But <laughs> um, yes, I play. Even though I've heard nothing but bad things about it, uh, pretty much anything that Nicole Kidman is in that is not Bewitched, I will go see. Okay. So, so the key question here is: Did you see the foreign film, the original one that won the Oscar a few years ago? I did. I did not. Okay. Yeah, so I you feel may like that's you may actually get more out of it not having seen the foreign one because I feel like if a person has seen that movie and they're going to see the remake, it's not gonna it's not gonna land for them. But if you haven't, it's it's a great story. the The screenwriting mm-hmm. in it is top notch. So if you go in and you haven't seen the original, you are going to enjoy the heck out of yourself. Um, okay. I would then maybe suggest eventually come around and see the, the see the the Spanish version. Uh, yeah, actually, how, I believe it's from why, Argentina. Yeah, why I haven't seen that, I can't. I, I can't say, but yeah, well, the I, funny, sh- I should catch up with that. Too. Yeah, the funny thing is, my copy has actually been sitting on my on my coffee table for like a week and a half because with the new one coming out, I want to. I've been feeling the the need to rewatch sure. it, and um, it's it's crazy because um, a friend of the show, Jess Rogers, was emailing with me this week saying that. Secret in Their Eyes was one she was really looking forward to because she feels like it's in Oscar contention. And I had to, re- like, you know, go back to her and say, actually, it's kind of sort of not. Like, it, yeah, it kind of, I, yeah it, I think it fell off. Yeah. It, on, on paper, it certainly seemed like something that was going to be doing itself. itself uh, a gr- like, sorry, on paper, it certainly seemed like it was positioning itself really well for an Oscar run. But something about it is just fail to latch in the run-up and it's not going to make that kind of jump yeah but enjoy it <laughs> after all that enjoy. you know I, I i hope i do i i don't know i'll go, I'll go into it with an open mind yeah again we'll, the, we'll the, see what happens yeah at the very least it's a great story i imagine if this is your first time sure. experiencing this story you're going to enjoy it yeah and then i can compare and contrast with exactly. the original 
Well, there we go. That's more about Nick. We'll learn more about him in two years or so when he shows back up for his third <laughs> go. Um, for now, though, it's time to go to the new slang. The new slang for this episode is Tom McCarthy's Spotlight, which we'll talk about right after this. Spotlight is directed by Tom McCarthy. It is written by McCarthy along with Josh Singer. It stars Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, Brian Darcy James, John Slattery, Liev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci, and Billy Crudup. It goes back to 2001 and tells the story of the Boston Globe uncovering once and for all the breadth and scope of the Roman Catholic Church's history of sexual abuse and the lengthy cover-up that hid the misdeeds specifically in the city of Boston, Massachusetts. Our story begins when Marty Baron, that's Leah Schreiber, joins the Globe as a new editor-in-chief and comes upon a story of abuse that he feels requires further investigation. He hands the assignment to Spotlight, a long-form section of the paper dedicated to deep investigative journalism. The team is headed by Walter Robinson, that's Michael Keaton, and filled out by Michael Resendez, Sasha Pfeiffer, and Matt Carroll. That's Ruffalo McAdams and Brian Darcy James, respectively. Together, they start digging and discover that the allegations isn't just one or two bad apples, but a long list of perpetrators and enablers. I'm the person who likes to watch things being made. I like films about cooks or mechanics putting their products together piece by piece. And to a certain degree, that includes journalists. But the more I wonder about that and how it's employed in films like Spotlight, the more I wonder why I like to watch people in rooms talk and things be made. So, pop quiz hotshot. What is it about the building of a story that we find so fascinating? I can understand why a person would enjoy seeing a clock be put together or a dish of sushi being served. But what is it that we find fascinating about a story unfolding in front of our eyes? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, I feel like in the context of Spotlight, um, and really most movies um, that are, you know, that are based around journalism, right? They're like trying to ferret out the truth, some, some form of the truth. And in particular, like in our current climate, I feel like with you know, with what has happened to, to the media, to newspapers, to journalism in general, that type of thing, uh, to, to see, to see the craft in play and the way that these, that these people have to go about, you know, what they have to do to get to that truth. I, I, I feel like that always makes for a very compelling story. As do I. And the only answer I could come up with for my own question is to see how the storyteller, the ultimate storyteller compiles the facts. So in, mm-hmm. in the, the one thing that we come across time and again in spotlight is we'll have a journalist sitting down with a subject and asking them very deep probing questions. You know, so, sometimes they're very offhanded. Like there's a conversation where uh, with, with a, a former priest on a doorstep. Sometimes it's with a victim in a coffee shop and they're, unveiling deep truths, sometimes stuff that they haven't told anybody else. But what I find is the key in this moment, and perhaps why I'm so fascinated by the way these stories are built, is I watch 
the listener. I watch the reporter as they listen to what's being told. I'm focusing less on what is what they're being told, and instead, I'm more interested in what they see in it. Does that make any sense? No, I, that absolutely makes sense. I feel like one of the best parts of Spotlight is is the performances in that exact context that you just described. Uh, partic- I mean, er- everyone in this movie is good, but particularly Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams. And they both have different styles of interviewing, of, ha- of them with their subjects and the way that they draw out this, like you said, these really personal confessions I mean, there's something very intimate and in, human in those moments. Extremely. That it's yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's people, and it's, it's these reporters doing their job, but then, and they walk that really fine line of they're doing their job, but they're also, you know, there, there's also, you can feel that, the, that it is coming from somewhere deep, too. They want to they get it right. There's they an investment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I take it because I really didn't have to try too hard to get you out of this show. I take it you dug this movie. Oh man, where to begin? I mean, the Mark, I mean, the Mark Ruffalo performance off the top of my head was just fantastic. I mean, so much of this movie is, you know, about watching these people just go about doing their jobs, and, and in order to do that, you have to have people that that sell what they're doing. And Mark Ruffalo's performance. I think on Twitter afterwards, I said he basically shapeshifts, which is I feel like what he's doing in this role. Like he completely, he he always in so many movies he has this kind of maybe not lackadaisical, but kind of a very you know go with the flow kind of vibe. Yeah. But he's got his his hair's clipped and his his mannerisms are so precise. Like you can tell he's a guy that's been that's always hunched over his keyboard in his his speech patterns with the way that he that he interacts with people. Like, just very, very on point, no nonsense. You, yeah, you get that a lot in this movie. This is a movie that's made up... It's it's kind of um, it's kind of an Ocean's Eleven of character actors. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there There is a very, very deep yes on this movie <laughs> in terms of its cast, from, like, Keaton on down to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, John Slattery is, is one of the other editors, and there's somebody who we'll get to in a while who only shows up as a voice, and, uh, and even people like Billy Crudup as, as one of the lawyers. These oh. are not... They're not quite what you'd call like stars. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to, they're not going to light up a red carpet at a film festival, but when you bring them all together, what you've got is, is a really, really talented group that when you put them together, just explode with so much, um, honesty and humanity, which is what this movie excels in, which I think for me was what made it so special. Yeah, absolutely. Their, their interactions. And I really liked what they did, uh, particularly with the main with with the spotlight team itself, with Keaton and um, Ruffalo and McAdams and, and Darcy James, like how they, you know, they very much were a family, but that was never like drummed into our heads incessantly. Like just the way they they were always in that you know in the cramped office together with the desks. Like it it felt like it felt like their family room basically. Yeah. And you know there were little there were tiny little references you know, to their outside lives and their families that they were, you know, obviously ignoring for, for the bigger part of the story. But it, you know, it was never, it was never forced in, in the way that they interacted. It just kind of, it just kind of effortlessly was conveyed that this, you know, that in a way that this was their family. Well, and they all, they all work so differently, right? Like you've got, when when you've got, um, 
you, you mentioned Mark Ruffalo, for instance, like, and I think that for it's by the sounds of it, he was the performance that stood out for you. For me, it was somebody different. Yeah. But Ruffalo is a, for instance, as Resendez, he's kind of on the spectrum. You know what I mean? Like when you watch him interacting, you can tell that it's a little bit of a push for him mm-hmm. that he's not the most social person. Yes. That, that he's really got to psych himself up. He talks to everybody. Like you, you see him talk to clerks and he's got a lot of interactions with Stanley Tucci, but you can see that he's not completely comfortable in it. And that's like you were saying earlier, Ruffalo, generally speaking, is a, a really easygoing guy. So yeah, very, this is very a different personal. kind of performance for him. Yeah, no, it is. Absolutely. You're right. Like anytime there's something that's discussed that like isn't, that doesn't pertain uh, to the investigation or, or to what he does. Yeah, he's very, very tight-lipped about yeah. it. Meanwhile, you've got somebody like Keaton is, you know, he's the captain. He's the guy who's going to go to bat for any of these ones. He's the one who's going to push them when they need to or coddle them when they need to. And he's the one who's going to take the really hard subjects. Rachel McAdams as Sasha, she's really fascinating because I feel like she's got a different kind of line into her subject matters like i you, she's done a lot of different things over her career and here she's really playing somebody who she's a pro right like she's not looking to make friends with with the people that she talks to but at the same time she's able to approach them with a great deal of empathy and humanity that they'll open up to her yeah rachel mcadams just like natural presence i feel like is just perfectly in line yeah with this character that she's playing yeah, yeah, th- yeah, she's so yeah, she's so polite and just yeah, no, it's yeah, a, who yeah, who wouldn't want to open up to her? Exactly, it's it's a great team in this movie, and that's part of the reason why it works so well. Like you could have totally cast this with nobodies. Like you could have mm-hmm. given me like I just rhymed off some names, but you could have given this movie to no names. But as long as they were these kinds of actors, these kinds of very very human actors, and everybody like it's it's a very dialed down kind of movie. Like nobody looks really flashy. As reporters certainly. Oh yeah, they, you know, and I feel like I feel like costume design in this movie is like is like spot on. Yeah, the, the lighting uh, is all very flat in that off in that newsroom. The, the everything is really cramped. The light, the the skies outside are gray. Stanley Tucci's office is even more of a catastrophe. <laughs> it's all these things that make this movie seem so very genuine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. You know. Um, now, the the other key I think to this movie is. There's a tone and a pace that they nail in this movie, specifically where it comes to, let's be honest, telling us a story that we really already know. You know, off air, you and I talked about spoilers in this movie, and there really are none because we everybody knows that this story came to light. And, and even just the very nature of itself, when you hear Boston Globe investigates abuse in the Catholic Church, you know they're going to find it because, one, it's already passed. It's, this is something that happened 15 years ago. Two, it's something that everybody just knows exists, right? Sure. It's, it's, it's not covering. So that is important. Like pace and tone of how they go about telling the story when it's not who done it, but show me how you're going to do it. I yeah, think, exactly. Like, did, you, did you find yourself kind of getting caught up with the movie would kind of you'd get a really snappy conversation and then you'd get some background gears and then you'd get a snappy conversation and then you'd get some mechanic like i mean when you're you know when you're dealing with something like this where you're having someone explain to you what happened i mean that's basically exposition so all so much of this dialogue is exposition but i i feel like 
knowing how it ended, what what was really interesting to me about the movie and what I felt like it was doing when it was all said and done was it was, you know, it was really showing us what the process is. It could have been any story, I feel like, in a way. I, I mean, the, you know, the there certainly are parts of it that do go back you know, to what was going on in the Catholic Church. But in a way, I do feel like it could have been any story. And it, and it was just taking us through the process of what these people do. Um, like like the Leah Schreiber character keeps saying, you know, building the story from the top down, like they needed everything. And, and just showing how they harness all these facts to put it together, to tell a story, you know, just this, this you know, a, a story that, that completely holds together. Um, and, and that just shows the entire process. And I feel like that's the, like that's what it was doing more than anything was it was taking us through the journalistic process. Well, and then on top of that, the movie strikes the appropriate tone because this is a this is a movie that very yes. easily could have demonized, right? You could have gotten mm-hmm. the, the, the closest they come is there are a lot of shots where people meet other people and there's a church looming a church. in the background. You yeah, know, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's like it's one, yeah, that's like the, the one visual motif I felt like of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Lots of churches. Yeah. That, that, that's Boston. I think the only thing Boston has more of than churches is bars. <laughs> yeah. And, and I say that as somebody with Irish Catholic background, so I can say that, um, but it, it could very easily have been, you know, mm-hmm. low droning strings or very easily could have been, you know, shadowy shots of priests looking forlorn. I think by avoiding that tone, by instead going for a tone of of shock, really, yeah. to the and, depth and, that... and of and I think of journalistic, you know, objectivity. I feel like that's what part of it was, was that yeah, that they were never yeah, that they were never just casting this light over the Catholic Church, you know, from the very beginning. They yeah. Were saying, yeah, we need to get the evidence to prove it. And then the more the more you see, the more the more shocked you become. And that's the thing. It comes up. There's there's a scene early on where they think they've got a grasp on how far this goes. And they think they've got names of 16 priests that that, that could have been abusers that could that, that could have been um you know, sexually abusing children in their parishes. And when they go to a specialist about this, the specialist says, that sounds low. If there's 1,500 priests in Boston, you're looking for a number closer to 90. The next cut, like it's a smash cut to John Slattery in his Roger Sterling best saying 90 (laughs) priests. Are you kidding me? And I think he even throws in some blue language there just for good measure. But that is the thing is that they're, they're aghast. Everybody in this movie and the tone of this movie is how could this possibly have been happening? Not, oh my God, look at this happening, but can you believe this happened? And I think yeah. that's one of the things that really makes it work. Yeah, no, I would, yeah, I would agree with that. The, yeah, the shock in the, and then, and then the kind of, you know, the further it goes along, kind of delving back into the past and where, you know, what, what did we do wrong? Where did we miss it? You know, the, it asks those types of questions too. Well, sure. Just, because, just how hard do we, how do we dig into these things? What, yeah. what do we choose to see? Yeah. Did um, for at, at one point in the movie early on, actually, I think I believe it's about halfway through the movie. We we take a little break for for nine eleven purposes. Did did you find that a distraction, or did you find like it's obviously part of the narrative because it affects 
the pace at the way that the story could be uncovered. Did that was that okay, or did you find that a little bit distracting? No, you know, I I actually I I did like that. Um, you know, wh- whether that was that was factual or not, I I thought that was. Well, it that, would be. Like, like, like that was very much a part, like showing us what what being a journalist is actually like. Like sometimes you have to set aside whatever it is that you actually are doing to do something else, and it certainly captured the frustration that they felt. I, it, that and that was kind of really actually a kind of interesting way of looking at at nine eleven was like a viewpoint. I I don't know that I felt like I haven't seen. Um, on film of seeing it from a journalist viewpoint of how you just you treat it very pragmatically and you're like oh this is disrupting this other thing that i'm working on and now i have to set this aside to work on this instead i i thought that was like that was very real yeah as it would be like i you know you're you're right i think if nothing else that that plot point was played accurately and at the very (laughs) least it wasn't played for emotional resonance which is usually what i find 9-11 works like 9-11 as a plot point i usually find works for sadness or 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 emotional hearts heart tugging you know here it was used as the moment where this profession was thrown into chaos for you know several months and if they were already working on something that would take them several months that really would have thrown at the very least they move on from it quickly. It it shows how it slowed the investigation, but they don't linger on it and leave it. You know, we don't see yeah, it doesn't, September it doesn't, to December of 2001. Yeah, it doesn't foil the pace of the film itself. I, I, I didn't think it did. Well, or the work, because they yeah. end up publishing the story right before Christmas of 2001. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, yeah. right before New Year's of 2002. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things that it was... Every, you know what, this is going to sound terrible, but I'm going to say it. Every time 9-11 gets invoked in a movie, I always kind of hold my breath and wonder how it's going to be invoked. Sure, yeah, it's a very, yeah, it can be a very convenient backdrop for communicating, Yeah, you know, whatever, yeah, so, whatever kind of allegory. You're, yeah, you're so that was why. When it came up, I'm like, all right, how long are we going to linger on this? <laughs> and that sounds terrible, but it's, it's just what I, you know, I, I think it was because I was so invested in this movie. Um, you know, this, this is a film that talks about, you kind of mentioned this earlier, the importance in news and film of telling the story, right. You know, of, of getting it one, like you've got one shot at it and being able to nail it. Um, Rachel McAdams has to talk to her, one of the victims and say, you know, I know that you're wanting us to blow the lid off this really quickly but we and and i know that it seems like we're dragging our heels but i assure you we are trying to do the right job mark ruffalo loses it on walter Mm -hmm. robinson later because he thinks now is the time now is the time i really felt like if nothing else of this movie beyond just the whole look at what the catholic church did the core point of this movie is if you are going to tell a story a big story that is going to affect lives you have to tell it right yeah absolutely agreed with you know there's just so much now of jumping to conclusions before you know all the facts are in i mean it's just it happens all the time and and i don't know if i feel like they must have meant that intentionally that that you know it, it just settles on the movie at the end I mean, so well, just saying, you know, you've got to, you've got to wait until you have, you know, all the information and then, you know, lay out your case and here it is. 
And, and I feel like part of, you know, with the Catholic Church, how, like, they don't even have a response in the movie. Yep. I, yeah, I, you Which know, I love... Which they didn't. Like, that, yeah. that is factually accurate. They did not. It, exactly. And, and, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was the real thing, but that, you know, that just worked so perfectly, as in, as in you know, it, you know there, there was no way for them to hit back because they did, you know, they did all that diligent work. And there was, you know, that that's what happens when you actually don't jump to conclusions and you have all the information, you know, what can you say? Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that I feel, you know, one of the themes of this movie is the, and we're going to talk about it with one of the other movies after the, after the break, one of the movies that we're going to talk about the other side is the importance of the fifth estate, the importance of the media in the way that they can dig deep into a story and bring it to light and how we've lost that in such a short time. Like, it's 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 crazy to think that this film was only 15 years ago that, that these events were happening and the state of things that you know first of all that newspapers themselves aren't what they used to be that long sure. form journalism isn't what they used to be at the beginning of this movie when Robinson and um, Baron have their first meeting he says okay you know spotlight how do you guys work and he says well we'll usually mull about our story for a month or two before we decide on what are you going to do? And he goes, okay. And then what? And he goes, and then we'll investigate it and dig into it for sometimes up to a year. And you think about that. Now you think about that in the age of digital media, yeah. like are you, you never get that kind of opportunity to really dig into a story that way. And what are we losing because of it? No, exactly. You know what? One of the things that really occurred to me was I, you know, obviously this movie, makes you think of all the president's men yeah and all the president's men was a movie that was of its time like you know it, it, i mean that's how things were then and you watch spotlight and that you know and it feels so much of it feels modern but you're like no that was that was 14 years ago like this yeah the world has changed so much since this happened it's 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 crazy to consider it's one of those things that actually left me feeling very sad at the end of this movie that we don't get this kind of work anymore from from our media i know it kind of yeah that yeah that's the thing it's like it's in so many ways the movie itself just the story is is a good thing you know they 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 brought this this horrible tragedy to light but then you think about it in the broader scope of of where media is and it feels almost like a death rattle like this this is you know which it's I chronically really the it's, end of something oh yeah, i know i hope it's not for so many like just even as a even as a fan of reading and consuming long form you know i i really hope that this is not going away for good oh i as as someone who goes to the long read site you yeah. know every day yeah amen yeah. so i got a question for you because there's a character in this movie that we never see that is only a voice on the phone. Um, and that's a, a, the, the character name is Richard Sipe. He's a psychotherapist. He's the one that says you're looking for you're not looking for 16 priests. You're looking for 90 nine zero. It's played by Richard Jenkins, which shouldn't surprise anybody because he's been in several Tom McCarthy films before. Um, how did that work for you? Like, uh, did the gimmick land or was it kind of like Charlie's angels? Cause there's a lot of moments where we've just got the spotlight team listening to this, uh, you know, speakerphone. You know, I feel like Richard Jenkins was a and I, and I will cop first of all to immediately after the film, looking well, it up immediately, but yeah, being like that was Richard Jenkins. Oh, no, I, I, I need to go and see 
If yeah, I know what you. I caught I, it. I, I I was sitting there going, I know that voice. I know that voice. <laughs> I, and eventually, I landed on. Oh, it's you know, it's it's, it's Mr. Fisher. That's right. Yes. I feel like though, I mean, to a certain type of moviegoer, Richard Jenkins, I think is you know we you know oh he's totally you know him pretty well, but I I feel like his voice isn't for the most part you know something that that's going to stand out for everyone. Sure, it's a distinctive. He certainly has a distinctive voice. Yeah, um, especially when he's flat like like he is in this movie and. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it I think it did work. I don't think it, it overshadowed so, what but, was going uh, on. But it like no, no no don't get me wrong. Like it wasn't like you had Alan Rickman on the phone. What oh, I'm sure, curious sure. of more is did it ever bother you that this person who is driving the statistics and driving the psychology character that, that we only ever hear him that we never see him did that bother you? In contrast to a character like Stanley Tucci who's larger than life and all over the screen. Uh, I don't think so. I think in some ways, like you could say that he's kind of like this movie's deep throat uh, sure. to go there. Yep. And instead of, in a, you know, and in this world where you don't just have to meet in parking garages, that's how you would communicate is, is by phone or now it would probably, you know, be some other means. So no, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it was okay. I think it did work. It didn't. Yes. Yeah. Didn't take me out of the movie. You know, the one thing that, that I would, that I would address. Sure. Uh, because it's something that I've read in like some of the movies reviews I've read after seeing the movie is talking about it visually, how it's somewhat of an uninteresting visual movie. Yeah. Okay. Which, which I, um, I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's not an exciting visual movie, but I felt like for me, the, just the kind of, you know, the very basic, you know, walk and talk shots, I, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff, I felt like was very true um, in keeping with how uh, a journalist might write, you know, about this kind of story with very, with very economical, very economical uh, visual style for the film. It just kept everything on this very even keel. And so I actually, I actually liked that. And that you like you know what's what's funny is one of the movies we talked about in the last episode was uh, was Mommy um, by by Xavier Dolan, the guy who directed the Adele video, and how he managed to take a very straightforward story of mm-hmm. a mother and her dysfunctional son and make it very very visually interesting, shot after shot after shot, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm I'm fully in favor of taking everyday moments and turning them into something beautiful. But every once in a while, I think you really have to turn down the bells and whistles and let Mm -hmm. the story speak for itself. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You you know what I'm saying? Like, we'll, we'll come back to this for sure because the next movie we're going to talk about flips that over and, and actually (laughs) gets very flashy about the way it tells its story. But I think about, for instance, um, another movie of this ilk is good night and good luck. And that movie, for instance, strips back color. It goes to black and white where it very easily Mm -hmm. could have made it very lush and pretty in the way of the hour or mad men or one of those type of, um, pieces. So yeah, it's, you're right. It, It is very visually dull. It's flat. The, boardroom is all halogen lights they look like they're in a storage closet nobody ever goes to the flashy parts of boston um i'm sure there are flashy parts of boston but they're not coming to me um but you know i i I feel like that was so that we would listen and not just get caught up in looking 
Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. we, um, you know, obviously we both dig this movie and we both really think that people should chase it down. Um, but we end our reviews here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, a tangible or intangible item that if you could, you would keep. Um, Nick Priggy, if you could keep a souvenir from Spotlight, what would you keep? There is a scene, uh, very ending, which is a, a walk and talk scene where, uh, Rachel McAdams and Brian Darcy James, I believe, also are eating cake. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was someone's birthday, and they're in they're walking and they're eating cake as they're discussing their job. And I thought that was just a a wonderful and quick little bit of characterization of how these people are able to actually get food down in the middle of walking down to the office to go do more work. Yeah, I, I thought that was fantastic. That best, is that is best a good one. Meal eaten in a movie in 2015. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, I want to have lunch with Stanley Tucci. Um, <laughs> Stanley Tucci has a lot of great scenes with Mark Ruffalo in this movie as this very eccentric lawyer named um, Mitchell Agarabedian, who is, you know, there, there's a great scene where he talks about how he's Armenian and Ruffalo is Portuguese. And, and meanwhile, they are the outsiders in Boston, you know, like they, they may speak like Bostonians and they may be from like, I think Ruffalo's from the East side. He goes, but we're not really in the club. I don't know if he goes, I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but we're not, you know, they'll look at us differently. But the, my point of why I want to have lunch with Tucci is I watch him in this scene and he's eating soup and he's eating it very deliberately. Like it's one of these things where you can think of, Tucci yeah. probably really thought about how this guy would eat. I don't think this is Tucci just shoveling it in. I don't think this is the way Tucci eats himself, but it also sure. seems yeah. very, very real. Yeah, no, I know. I know exactly what scene you're talking about. I can, I can see that. Yeah. Like every, everything Stanley Tucci does, I feel oh, like yeah. it's got, has got to be an act of choice. So yes, I'm with you. Yeah. So I want to, you know, just to hear the man talk and to watch him eat soup. I want to have lunch with Stanley Tucci. That's my souvenir. We rate on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Nick Priggy, Chicago, Illinois. What do you give spotlight? Uh, three and a half. Ooh, okay, all right. Well, so now, like, not to go too far down the hall because we got to go further. But where did it lose the half? Uh I just, I just, I, I, I just. That's that's just how I am. I just can't go all the way to four <laughs> unless unless I'm like okay, gut punch. All right, and, I got you. Well, and, and I liked it. I liked it a lot. But f- yeah, fun, funny you should mention that because for me, this was the gut punch. This is a four star <laughs> movie for yeah. me. This will be very high on on the films that i've i talking about at the end of the year and i've said it before and i'll say it again if you can give me a story that i know exactly where it goes and you still engage me for two hours that is something special and i think that for everything we've talked about already and for so much more that we could be here talking about it for the entire episode this is a really important movie and a really engaging movie um, and one that I think a lot of people should see. So four for me, three and a half for Nick, even though he loves it and just doesn't want to go there. Three, three point, uh, <laughs> three point seven five. There we go. 3.75. Um, but uh, hey, I'm sure there are haters of this movie. There was one walking ahead of me when I left the theater and I just kind of wanted to sit him uh, down and get his side of things. Let me know what you think. Ryan at the matinee Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Tom McCarthy's spotlight? Um, I'm very curious to know. We are going to hold here for a moment or two and take a quick break. We'll come back right after this with the other side. Talk about two more movies. Come on back. A stranger thing would never change my mind. I'm going to change my mind.
We're back on the matinee cast. I'm talking to Nick Priggy in Chicago, Illinois, host and uh, proprietor, uh, Grand Poobah over at Cinema Romantico. And for his choice of The Other Side uh, to go along with Tom McCarthy's Spotlight, he went back to 1999 to one of my, no no shred of a lie, Nick, all-time favorite movies. I adore this movie to no end. And I thank you deeply for giving me another excuse to watch it today because it had been far too long. The movie is directed by Michael Mann. It is The Insider starring Al Pacino and Russell Crowe. It is the story of Jeffrey Wigand, the whistleblower from Philip Morris? Uh, Brown and William. Brown, Brown, and Will- Williamson. Brown Williamson. Thank you. The whistleblower from Brown Williamson Tobacco Company and the story of CBS News trying to unveil his whistleblowing uh, that followed. So I think I could obviously answer this question, but for the sake of conversation, Nick, what made you choose The Insider as a Marriott film to spotlight? Well, I think what uh, jumped into my head, I mean, obviously there's the whole the whole journalistic angle, but even more so than that, um, Spotlight was so much about these two institutions uh, the Catholic Church and the Boston Globe kind of going, you know, getting into the ring and going toe to toe. And that's kind of basically what happens ultimately in The Insider, right? It's it's 60 minutes and then all these tobacco companies, two institutions going head to head. And that, that's what I kind of kept coming back to in thinking about the movie afterwards. But I also just any movie I see that contains journalism in any capacity, I automatically think of The Insider because I think it's brilliant and wonderful and everything. <laughs> that's no that that's definitely a good one i you know it's kind of funny the, the two actually have a lot in common because this is another cast where it's a very very deep bench this is a this is a mm-hmm. cast along with pacino and russell crowe who's kind of in the beginning of his stardom this is the first time he was nominated for best actor um you also have christopher Plummer and michael gammon and philip baker hall and gina gershon and colin fior is in this movie and Debbie Mazur, like this is another cast that yeah. goes and goes and goes, but without what I would call a list star power, which again makes it that much more tangible. Um, I, you know, we we both I think kind of when we saw Spotlight, our brains immediately went to all the president's men, and we just mm-hmm. kind of uh, sure, yeah. So, but this is it's you know we kind of both I think left it aside because it's the obvious comparison. So this I think is a really really good substitute in that way because this and Spotlight and all the president's men are real life encapsulations of when the media affected real change. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, now, was this a film that you discovered later, or were you on board with this one in '99 when it dropped? Oh no, I was I was on board with in '99. I mean, I'm a Michael my Michael Mann fanboy. Last of the Mohicans is my my we're, all-time, we're a dying all-time favorite. Breed. Movie, Have you so. noticed that the Michael Mann <laughs> fandom is is withering out? It's these days. I, yeah. Black Hat is going to get a lot of uh, end of the year support from me. So, but oh, boy. It, it, it is. It You're is. I feel, okay. I feel like it's. I feel like there maybe isn't as much as there used to be. Okay. Um, don't get me wrong. It's like, you know, somebody was asking me, you know, if there was like a Blu-ray or something they could get me for Christmas. I was like, well, I haven't got black hat yet. And they're like, really? Um, <laughs> you want that? Um, no. So, so good. Oh call. my God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. 
Um, I was I was all over this movie when it when it first dropped as well. This was I, I've mentioned it a few times on this show. Um, the autumn of '99 was such a great time for movie going. Like it felt like every week yeah, something cool. awesome came out, and this was one of them. This showed up in November or something. Um, this is very much the opposite stylistically of. Very true. Uh, of Spotlight. There's, you know, Spotlight is very drab and very gray. This is a movie that wants to use color and use depth of focus and use editing and use every tool in the toolbox. Um, do you think that that distracts from this movie that you kind of get yourself lost in a shot or that it actually enhances the, the somewhat dry subject matter that's going on? I mean, there may be occasions where maybe Michael Mann, maybe he takes it a little too far, but I think, I think, uh, overall, no, I, I feel like generally what, whatever he's trying to do when, no matter how much he's trying to trick something up, there is, there is a greater purpose, uh, to what's going on in the movie. So yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, I, you're, you're okay with it. Like you're okay with, there's a lot of slow motion walking, this movie there's a lot of like you know really cool really cool saturation of color for instance so like there's a shot where al pacino is trying to have a conversation on the cell phone and he's losing signal so he wades out into the surf you know waist deep in wearing shorts still into the surf and the, the the water is this really deep aqua teal he's washed out it's obviously a really manipulated shot that didn't sure. distract from you you just kind of just ran with it and and just basked in it yeah, I feel, you know, I mean, could you have, could he have just had that, you know, in that, you know, the little beach house or whatever it is that they're, that they're staying in? Yeah, you could. Um, but I, but I, I feel like that is affecting that he's, uh, you know, that he's waiting all the way out there and just kind of, you know, screaming into the phone and then as well into this, this void of, of nothingness, which is one of Michael Mann's favorite, the, you know, the void of nothingness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I liked that a lot. Yeah. Um, this is a, a movie that I believe does something special. And this is a, another one of the reasons why I was really, really excited that you chose it. Um, this is a movie that when it, it talks about real life events, um, it shows that it's not enough just to tell a fictional story, just, just to tell a fictional version of an actual story. So in this case, you know, the, the tobacco uh, whistleblowing or the news of, of it happening, that it requires more facets. Have you ever noticed mm-hmm. that? That I kind of went through it a few months ago with the walk. I'm like, okay, you know, if there's all, re- if this has already been done, why are we doing it again? So when it came to the insider, I'm like, this was already a 60 minute story. There was the news surrounding the story, and it turned into a very long form article. So why do we need to do it again? And I feel like one of the things that film affords it is the ability to tell the story and then the story after the story and then the story after that story. Because you get, in this case, the whistleblowing mm-hmm. and then the push to get the get the reporting. And then the film basically stops in its tracks two-thirds way through and becomes about the fight to actually get this story out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and... I feel that that kind of A to B to C is what a mm-hmm. film needs to do if it's about something we already know. Sure. Yeah. I, I, w- 
I would agree with that. I, and I feel like what and what really what I remember affecting me, if I can remember that sure. far back, all the way back to 1999, is is the uh, um, like we just like with Spotlight, you know, like Spotlight, there isn't a whole lot. I feel like often with the characters. Uh, much of it is is just about the process. And in, in the insider is very much about the process. But I feel like there is also something that comes through in the insider about loyalty and about the way that Lowell Bergman is going to bat for Jeffrey Wigand. Sure. And like that's yeah, and that's that's where that movie ends up going. I mean that you know the the last third, a very compelling last third is is partially about Lowell Bergman. You know, taking on taking on CBS and in that whole deal. But it's also, it's very much, you know, the, you know, how, how far are you going to go uh, for this guy who, whose words you gave? And that's, you know, and, and I feel like that, that, that was really something that stuck with me on the first watch now at more the, than anything. Now at the end of the day, do you want more stories like that where the reporter gives more of themselves, or do you want more of the story like spotlight where the reporters are giving just enough? Oh boy. I, you know, it really doesn't matter. As, as long as it's well made, I'll take either one. Yeah. See, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I wouldn't question that this is an accurate portrayal of Lowell Bergman um, or of Jeffrey Wigand. But at the same time, I got to believe that they need no. to stay detached to a certain degree. No, I yeah, I yeah, I mean, I that's that's probably true. And I and I do feel like, you know, the things I've read and one of the things I noticed um, in rewatching it for this, uh, to tell the truth, I actually hadn't even planned on rewatching it cause I watched it. So I've seen it so many times, but then I was like, ah, I should just watch it again. Um, but in particular is how, like in real life, I feel like there was a lot more, it wasn't just Lowell Bergman and he kind of almost becomes a lone wolf at the end of the insider. Right. You know what I mean? And I think that in some ways that is Michael Mann kind of manipulating the story to tell, you know, the particular story that that he wants to tell, just about this, these two guys, um, and and how this guy's you know is doing all this stuff for this other guy. Uh, so so I you know I mean who really knows how much of that was was true or not? Yeah, case by case. I guess case. yeah. It's it's kind of funny because like I can I can see something for both. I can see something for people who they can only get invested so far before they start to yeah. really, really, you know, rack up the stress. I can see something for people who, who go, you know, who go waist deep into the ocean. Um, for sure. Uh, this is yet, you know, we talked about it before. This is yet another form of long form journalism that is just going the heck away. And it's, I, I, I wonder well, like, and that's really, that's really affecting to me too. Is at the end when, when Lowell Birdman, uh, you know, says that he's going to leave yeah. 60, which I also don't think actually happened in real life. But but there is something there that where you feel like this, you know, this is a form of journalism that's dying and that's communicated very eloquently at the end. Well, it's, it's funny because that was before new media really took over. Like the one, the one thing that if somebody <laughs> has, if something, if somebody has not seen the insider and you know, dare to dream, they go and watch it on our say so. The one thing that will, I'm certain, really shake them the living hell out of this movie is the tech. The the tech that they use in this movie is so gloriously 20th century. My it's, God, there's a fax machine that enters into the plot. It's oh, wonderful. the fax machine. I, See, oh, it's that is glorious. Fantastic. I know. Um, 
and everyone gathering to watch a television show. Yeah. Like at the end when like the, you know, those shots of everyone riveted watching, by the TV, yeah, like really watching the television. Yes, exactly. Um, it's, uh, it, that, that's the thing is that, that, that may throw people. So if, if Lowell is the one saying the, the party's over, Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a little premature that that by the you know events happening in 94 you know being told in 99 mm-hmm. is a little premature to say I'm walking away from this because we can't do it this, that way anymore I think where he is getting out of it and that was the beginning of it for sure is um you know media uh, corporations affecting the news because now it's even worse now Everything is owned by something else. And this, you know, we're both sports fans. Every sports team is owned by a media conglomerate. Every, you know, every media outlet is owned by a telecommunications company. So where does that integrity come in anymore? It really doesn't. Maybe that's what he was seeing. I, yeah, I think that's actually a really, a really excellent reading of it. And then that goes back, you know, to that whole, to the whole idea of institutions, these two institutions waging war, and that in the end they got the story on the air, and it and it had some effect. And, yeah, eventually and see that, and and they say that that it was worth it, and we would do it again, and this and that. But really, in the long run, you know, CBS probably probably won that war. Well, and and now we don't really have that kind of, you know, we're, now we're getting our news off the daily show and off tonight with John, with uh, John Oliver. And that's, that's kind of unfortunate that we're not (laughs) sitting on Sunday nights and watching 60 minutes anymore. You know, we're we're watching Game of Thrones instead. We'll be the next version cider, seeing how John Oliver battles to get one of those 20 minute segments on the air. Yeah, it will. Um, What's the ultimate takeaway from the insider uh, in, in the way that it relates to, uh, to spotlight? I would say that the quote unquote liberal media can make a difference. <laughs> Insider prove it. You commie bastard, um, <laughs> says the Canadian. Um, that's that's definitely a good one. You know, it's one of those moments where the media made a difference. A lot of times, it's just crap on on you know on in in tabloid rags but there is a lot a lot a lot of good that can come with it as well and i think that you're right i think that movies like the insider really show what the media can do we got one more movie to talk about so we're going to take one last break and come back after this um we'll be right back So for my choice of the other side, we finally get away from the media, um, in case you've been uh, reported out on this episode. My choice for the other side is a Danish film from 2012, directed by Thomas Vinterberg and starring Mads Mikkelsen. My movie is The Hunt, which if you've never seen it, uh, I envy you because it's a fantastic movie to see for the first time. Um, It's a movie about a man named Lucas who is uh, in a small Danish community. Um, he is a, uh, he's an L- a preschool teacher who is accused of sexually molesting one of, one of his students, which then goes on to being accused of molesting several of his students. The only problem is it is not at all true, and that is made very clear from the get-go. Um, when I reached out to you to make this my, my choice to go along with it, you like basically did a little dance of being happy to revisit it. Um, I take it. You like this movie. 
Uh, I do like this movie quite a bit. Uh, I, I'd only I saw it once, like right back when it came out, uh, and so yeah, I, it, it certainly made quite an impact the first time I saw it. But it's one of those, you know, gut punch movies that you really got to build up your stamina to rewatch. So I was I was happy to have an excuse. Yeah, it's it's not the kind you know. Anytime you get a movie like this where it's talking about some some kind of awful things, it's not really the kind of movie that you throw on on a Saturday night just for yucks. Like this is not this is really not a Netflix and chill kind of movie. (laughs) No, it is not. No, it is intense. Yeah. Um. How like how did this? Obviously, this is a movie that you you dig quite a bit. Is there anything in particular that jumps out for you when you when you think back on the hunt? Yeah, the, you know what? What I really like about it, um, what I liked about it the, so much the first time I saw it, and again this time, it made it made a great impact. Again, was was how was the point of view and how there's never any doubt about the fact that he didn't do what he's accused of doing. So we know all along, and that and that you have that knowledge as you watch, you know, just all of this just horrific shit. Pardon my language. Uh, uh, <laughs> happened to him it's, i mean it just it makes it i feel like it just makes it doubly powerful in the way that in you know whereas spite uh, is, is very much about um we have to take our time with these things until we have all the facts and the hunt is just this guy's the worst guy in the world we have to we have to throw stuff at him on the street yeah it's it's crazy because now that you mention it i can't think of too many movies that spell out right from the beginning this is not happening. And then what makes you watch while everybody else around believes that it's happening. It's really, really rare in that respect. And I think that might be why it's also so special is that it completely disarms something so heinous because if somebody whispered that about somebody, you knew you, you know, I'm not saying that you necessarily believe it right away, but mm-hmm. it would it would repulse you. It would give you pause. You would really have a hard time being judicious about it. But and the so the only way we can get on board with having any kind of sympathy for Mads Mikkelsen in this movie is by spelling out right off the get go that he absolutely did not do this, and it's a brilliant move. I mean, you say that, and that almost makes me think seeing it from the opposite point of view would be would be quite a trip too. Although I don't know, maybe that, maybe that would be almost too much. So wait, so like, you know, okay, let's, for instance, let, let's, let's go through the looking glass here. Let's say this was a movie <laughs> that you watched on a Sunday afternoon and you just happen to be flipping channels and you came upon it late and you didn't see that we, it, it was deliberately false. How, how deeply would that skew your opinion of what was going on? Yeah, that little oh boy. That, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and I know a yeah. lot of people who tune into movies late and then just keep on going with them. You know, I could only imagine how this movie would play if you did not have that spelled out for you. That would be an interesting experiment. Like, that would be an interesting psychological experiment just to see how, like, where people's minds would go. Would they? Would they? Su- would they like suddenly get on board with the town folk, or would they? Yeah. Oh, we're rushed. Rushed to judgment or and i mean there are some characters there's a couple characters you know in the movie that do that stand by, by him very very few uh, now, now i'm really intrigued thinking about that yeah um the you know there's there's an iconic shot in this movie that actually ends up being the poster for it on christmas eve 
where Mads Mikkelsen, uh, as as the lead character in this movie, whose name has suddenly fallen out of my head, Lucas, where Ma- Lucas turns. They're all everybody's gathered in the church. By this point, he's even been acquitted um, because because there was just you know evidence just was not lining up. But like you used the term earlier in the court of public opinion, that's not giving people still enough to go on, and he's still getting harassed. There's this scene in this church where he finally just turns and stares at one of his former best friends who's now one of his lead accusers and on his like just on his face is just written so so much i'm sure you know the look i'm talking about oh yeah absolutely it's incredible what some of these actors can do just with one glance isn't it no it's absolutely true and that's yeah and he kind of has to go i mean he has to go through this whole movie like that i mean he's so much of this movie he's essentially on his own i mean there are people that that are supporting him but yeah you can see you can see in his face the toll this is taking on him and how it's all how it's all building up and in i mean what do you do with that well so much of this movie he's walking around with a look of shame like he, he didn't even do it but he feels he feels rightfully terrible that he's even in this situation and then finally in the end here we get this look of defiance which it's still not it's not an aggressive look and not a classically aggressive look. It's just the turn and, you know, think what you're going to think and ma- and be done with it, please. Yeah. Like almost like he, he's made, he's made peace in some way with like, with whatever's going to happen to him. Yeah. Now, was, and then that was, and I like to, I mean, you know, it could have gone a different way and he, in that he's someone who, you know, where he almost would start to believe what they are saying about him. Oh yeah. And I, yeah, and I don't. I feel like there's hints of that there, but I don't feel like um, Nicholson plays it that way. No, throughout. Yeah, and in, in that in that scene that you described is like is the moment when he really takes possession of it for himself. Yeah, was it um, was it kind of strange to go back now and see Hannibal Lecter as a bit of a schlub? <laughs> I've I've never actually watched Hannibal. I mean, I've I've heard that I've heard that it's great, but I, that would so I I can't really speak to that. But I'm sure that would make it seem a lot different. Well, he's, he's such a versatile actor, right? Like he can do so many things. Mm-hmm. There are times where he can be a badass, even in like La Chiffre in, in the first James Bond movie with, um, with Daniel Craig and this kind of thing. It's, it's always for me wild to watch somebody who plays a vicious character all of a sudden be wearing plaid and, you know, be wearing glasses and heavy coats and that kind of thing. It's, it, it's, it's kind of like seeing Superman without his cape. Did he? Did Hannibal start after the hunt? Was it? Was that uh, before? Kind of during. Like it's the the okay. actual date on the movie is 2012, and it just had its last season this year. So 15, okay. 14, 13. Like right afterwards is when it is when it start. But like Lashif, uh, this Casino Royale mm-hmm. was before this. That's for sure. And he's, okay. he usually plays a badass. Well, uh, yeah. I just I just wonder if you know, like you do the hunt, and then you're thinking, boy, I want to be. You know, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to be persecuted in my next role, so I'm yeah. going to go the opposite. Yeah. Well, so now it's it's my turn to be on the hot spot and um, you know come away with the takeaway of why I went on to the hunt after seeing something like Spotlight, and there was a line in Spotlight where they say, if it takes a village to raise a child, you got to believe that it takes a village to ruin a child's life as well. And I, I, I like that metaphor, but at the same time, when I hear about how it takes a village, 
I also have to believe that it takes a village to believe in each other. So even though something like abuse is absolutely terrible, capital T terrible and should taken should be taken with the utmost seriousness, it also needs to be entered into cautiously, which is why in Spotlight everybody says we have to tell this carefully because if we don't, it can ruin a lot of things on a lot of sides. And, you know, don't get me wrong, a lot of abuse just goes unreported. A lot of abuse just never, ever, ever gets solved. But at the same time, it is possible that somebody could be accused falsely. And that's the thing that I feel like this movie really underlines is you need to give every bit of support to a victim and an accuser that you possibly can. But you can't string up the accused until you have the facts. Yeah, yeah, and I believe that's what you know. One hundred percent true. Yeah, I be, I believe that's what Spotlight has in its mind as well. And but they mm-hmm. have it from another side. They have it in terms of you can't tell a story before you have all the facts because then that story is discredited and you never get to tell it. And the people who were harmed never get their vindication. There you go. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. So there we go. Some great movies to go along with after you see Spotlight. And for the love of God, see Spotlight because it's so good. But that is episode 147 of the Matinee Cast. Come on back on Monday, December 7th for episode 148. I'm not dead certain what movie we're going to be talking about just yet. There's a lot of great stuff coming. Um, and it's really going to depend on release schedules. But I promise you, I will choose something that just tickles my fancy. And I feel like we can talk about really well for 80 minutes. Um, so many thanks to Nick for coming by the show today. Uh, his work can be found at cinema romantico. Um, the actual URL is it cinema romantico.com or is there a, a uh, WordPress or yeah, still dot blogspot.com. There we go. It's, um, go check it out. He's got a lot of stuff link in the show notes. Of course, you got anything coming up this week that you want to plug? Uh, no, just, just a bunch of reviews, just a bunch of reviews like usual. Well, we were saying, you know, you'll probably end up writing about uh, the secret in their eyes sometime soon. Yeah. At some point, hopefully look for that and look for the Friday old fashioned, of course. Oh, absolutely. What's, what's the next, what's, what's the next one? Uh, the next one is a because I've been doing noir movies this whole November because yep. it's hashtag noir November. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a movie called Ninety Nine River Street. Ooh, yeah, great. which was wasn't perfect, but there was stuff in it I liked a lot. That's so cool. yeah, that'll be up on Friday. And if people want to find you on Twitter, where can they find you? At Nick Priggy. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting you can also find them on pocketcast stitcher radio blueberry apple's podcast app and the itunes store everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop feedback on spotlight insider or the hunt can be left at ryan at the matinee.ca you can find me on twitter matinee underscore ca facebook.com slash dark matinee and um of course on the site the matinee.ca any final thoughts sir I don't believe so. I who's, think uh, who's, uh, who's Nebraska playing next weekend? They're playing Iowa. Uh, oh, you're from my home state. What, what, so you are, there's going to be a lot of trash talk this weekend. week. Yes. I'm sure I can, I can only imagine what your Twitter feed is going to be looking like and your Facebook wall. Uh, good, or, good, or really, really, really bad. Absolutely. For Nick, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.
ますね。